Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 6. We're journeying through Exodus. Exodus chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't, there are some on the table, please take one. From the beginning of our journey through Exodus, I have been calling us to remember And we have been focusing on the thought that God is a God. He is the God. He is the only God. He's not a God, as we'll find when we get to Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? No one. God is God. God is one who redeems and dwells with and delivers his people. I've been calling our attention to the fact that Exodus is not simply a story. Exodus is a narrative. There is a story being told, but it is historical account. Exodus is a narrative. Moreover, all of Scripture is a narrative, declaring above all the glory of God. What do we read the Bible for? We read the Bible to know God. When we read the Bible, God's glory is declared to us. We know God through his word. Scripture, among many other things, also declares the sinful condition of man. The scriptures declare God's redemption of sinful man through faith in Jesus Christ, God's judgment on those who walk in disobedience without faith in Christ, and scripture declares the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the redeemed will forever reign with him. The story is being told, but while the story is being told, it is essential for us to understand this is history. This is factual This is not just, oh yeah, Moses and the Israelites and Egypt and Pharaoh, like cute little Sunday school story that most people that aren't in churches are familiar with. No, this is fact and history for God's people. Real people in a real place, experiencing real hardship and watching and witnessing a real God work and move among them. Exodus is the account of God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Pastor, that's great. You've told us all that before. Yes, But today, if you're looking at Exodus 6, 14 through 27, I bring up narrative because many will say, and as you look at it, it kind of looks like there's something else happening in 14 through 27. Today we're going to deal with genealogies. And everybody said, that's my favorite topic of the Bible. I hoped that we could talk about genealogies sooner or later, that we could talk about names we can't say and what meaning they have. Well, you're in luck that you came today. We're going to do that. It's important for us. It seems like a break, especially when we consider what is on each side contextually of this genealogy. But my hope today is that something will come off of the pages to you that will make God more alive, the scriptures more alive to you. Many skim through genealogies. How about a show of hands? How many of you skim genealogies? No getting, there you go. How many of you just pass them all together and don't even try? It's no shame, no shame in it, right. When I come to them, I'm often like, and next. Um, however, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture. Oh, pastor, it's genealogy. It's Scripture. That men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit recorded for us to pay attention to. All Scripture is breathed out, inspired by God, and profitable. I wrote this down. Profitable to equip us, 2 Timothy 3.16 says actually 17, to equip us for every good work. So even in the genealogies, there is an equipping of the people of God for the work of God to the glory of God. And that's worth reading them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 reminds us that there is no prophecy produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God wants us to read genealogies. He wants us to understand why they're important. He wants us to understand how to pick through them and find his beauty, his glory in a list of names that most of us cannot say. Would you read with me this morning, Exodus 14 through 27. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. 
These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Kohathites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out of Israel, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Aaron and this Moses. Would you pray with me? Father, a piece of scripture that we often neglect, forgive us. Something that is often hard for us to find your beauty in and to give you glory for, we turn our heads and are not sure what to make of it. But I'm asking, Father, that you would help me to convey the truth of your word this morning. Father, I pray that though my voice is audible, that it would be your voice that is speaking to the hearts of those who have gathered, including my own. Father, I pray that you would speak to me as you speak through me. Father, I pray that we would see the beauty in the genealogies. I pray that we would find greater confidence in you as we study them. I pray, Father, that through the preaching of your word today, sinners will be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray, God, that holiness will be promoted among your people. And I pray that Christ the Savior will be exalted. It's in his name. Amen. I entitled the sermon, if it matters to you, I entitled the sermon, Doesn't Matter Where You're From. Doesn't matter where you're from. Did I put it on the screen? I did do it right this week. Good. Doesn't matter where you're from. I have two things that I hope to help you see from today's text. One, if you're a note taker, you can write these down. One, through this list of names that we can barely pronounce, I hope to show you that our family history and where we come from is insignificant to the plan of God. Your history cannot outdo God's plan. I hope that will become evident today. The second thought, that God's covenant with man has always involved a mediator. A mediator has always been necessary between God and man. We will not discuss mediatory work in great deal today. Trust me, as we get later into Exodus, don't worry. The work of the mediator is going to grow and grow and grow. But we are going to rather maybe just catch the scent of mediatory work on the wind of what Moses is writing as we work through this passage today. Genealogies, they are throughout the Bible. You can find them in Old and New Testament. They are major portions of scripture that cover family histories, and the plan of God among man. Why are genealogies important? Note number one, because God has always been working among man for his glory and his purpose through man. And so when we have the records of names, we see God working among mankind. Genealogies throughout the Bible, some are micro. You'll only get a few names from a few generations. Just maybe one or two or three or maybe four or five names from generations. Some are a little larger, like the one that we have before us today, showing us a, a segment of a family, starting with, these are the heads of their father's houses, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the first three sons of Jacob, Israel, showing us the line of Levi down to the time of Aaron and his sons and Moses. So just a, a segment, a little larger. Others, however, are great in their scope and their detail, not missing anyone from A to B. You'll find pages 
for those who are in the Bible reading plan, who are working through the Bible uh, every day, different section. First Chronicles is coming. And if you struggle with genealogies, you will struggle for nine consecutive chapters. It's like one after, I'm like, even, even, even I. Oh boy, Lord, could we maybe, it's there for a reason. We're supposed to read it. We must read it. I want to give you a few examples of, of genealogies throughout the Bible. Some of these are important. You can jot down the ones that stand out to you. And if there are some you missed, please, I'd be happy to share my notes with you. Genesis 10 and 11, uh, in the Sunday school class, it's probably been covered to this point. So I'll look toward, oh, uh, he walked out, the, the adult Sunday school teacher anyway. I'm not sure if youth have gotten there yet, but the, the table of nations, Genesis t- chapter 10 and 11. So the sons of Noah, Ham, Sham, and Japheth, 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 however you want to say it, the sons of Noah and their sons, and from them we see most of the nations that will be represented throughout the Bible. From them we see Canaan, we see Nineveh, we see a lot of these nations come out that will be uh, uh, enemies and foes of the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 46, this is significant to our study through Exodus. Genesis chapter 46 gives us the names of Jacob's family all of those who were alive and went with Jacob into Egypt. That's significant because the Bible tells us, we studied in Exodus chapter 1, 70 persons at all, but they're not nameless people. They have names, who they came from, who they were. Jacob's family, all who go into Egypt. First Chronicles, I just talked about. Chapters 1 through 7 records the generations from Adam to Abraham to Jacob. To Jacob's 12 sons, to David, the king of Israel. As a bonus, we get King Saul's genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 8. Chapter 10 and 11, you get Saul's or David's mighty men. Like they're all listed out. They're all given in detail the names of these guys and where they came from. 1 Chronicles 9, Ezra 2, Nehemiah 7, some sacred names. The list of those who returned from the exile in Babylon. Those are important people that come back after the exile to Babylon, God gathering people back, the Lord gathering his people back to Jerusalem. In Ezra 10, this is not the most comfortable chapter to read, Ezra calls out those who are guilty of intermarrying with nations around them. Like, it's a whole list of, hey, y'all done wrong, sinners, you shouldn't have married to that nation, you're Israelites, and you married people from the land around you, oops, all of Ezra chapter, it's contained in Ezra chapter 10. Nehemiah 3, those who returned to Jerusalem and worked on the wall, family after family after family. And there are great lessons to learn from Nehemiah 3. In Nehemiah chapter 10, those who signed the covenant that was renewed in Jerusalem after the exile. Also important. God's people reaffirming the covenant of God as his people in Jerusalem and, and putting their names down on that covenant. This is, you understand, Somebody just thought, yeah, big deal. No, this is like the signers of the Declaration of Independence for us. This is like the signers of the Constitution. They gathered and renewed the covenant before God, and these men came forward as heads of fathers' homes and put their names as a seal on the covenant. We will keep this. Then in Luke 1, or Luke 3 and Matthew 1, actually, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know why we don't read genealogies? Because many of the names that we read appear there and nowhere else. And we have a great hunger and a desire to know why, when it says, I'll give you an example from today's text. Look down at verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel. That dude's not in the Bible, or girl, or whatever I just read. Wife of one of the daughters of, yeah. She's not, he's not, whoever that is, is not listed ever again in Scripture. Like, I don't even know if to tell you if that's like the the, the lady's father or wife. Aaron's son took as his wife one of the daughters of, so we can assume that's the father, but never again in Scripture, we have no idea. And most of the names, many of the names that we read in genealogies never again appear in the Scriptures. That's one reason that we struggle to read them. Why are they important? Why do they matter? Not everyone is mentioned multiple times, but when we don't read genealogies, you're missing certain key connections. The Bible is intended for us to read. It's intended for us to read the whole thing over and over. And not every name is only listed one time. When you don't read genealogies, you miss names like Zerubbabel, who is not listed in chapter 6 of Exodus, 
but who I will make a connection to because of chapter 6 in Exodus today. You miss names like Aminadab and Nashon. Did you see them down there in verse 23? You miss names like Eleazar. And you miss extremely important connections of God's plan throughout history using man to accomplish his purpose for his glory. God wants you to see the names listed in Scripture. He wants you to research the names that can be researched and see the things that can be seen about those people. Sometimes, and don't even get me started on the meaning of names, sometimes the only significance that you will find is looking up, and I hope you have some good Greek or Hebrew resource that can tell you what these things are. I have one I'm glad to recommend to you if you're interested, where you can look up a name and it can tell you what that name means because sometimes all there is to find is the meaning of a name. And the fact that God put that name in the scripture. We don't think about this really so much anymore. Trust me, I've named six children. My wife and I have arduously worked through naming our children. It's something that came at great pain, not physical, but perhaps mental, as we labored over what will we name these children. Because if you're not thinking through and giving great, listen, those who will be at someday parents, the name you give your child is extremely important. Daughters' last names will change if they marry. But that name you give, that is the identity of that person. Uh, we had a family reunion a couple of years ago. It was funny because my uncle was kind of organizing it. And uh, if you know me, I'm a history nerd, and I also like writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. I like the Lord of the Rings, and I like The Hobbit, and I like all that stuff. It's fun and fascinating. But my uncle sent this email, hey, who's coming? We're gathering the information. And I replied and said, the clan of John, son of Don, son of George, son of Harry will be present. Those names are important. You're like, yeah, they're not important to me, but they are to me. Because it was the family of Harry, my grandpa's dad, that was gathering. And that was more than just me and my dad, my cousins and my family. It was everyone connected to that man. And we know we're connected to them because of the names that have been given. God wants you to see it. God wants you to read it. God wants you to understand what you can understand. Listen, I am making a case. It's hidden, but underlying the whole teaching today, I am making an extreme case for read the whole Bible and read it over and over. Like, Pastor, when you get to the end of reading the Bible in a year, what are you going to do? I'm going to read the Bible in a year again. Over and over. For that, well, Pastor, that's just, that's hard for me to do. I don't really... I know it's hard to do. It was hard for me to do the first time. The second time, it was not as hard. This year has been an absolute joy, and I cannot wait for next year to start. I'm like, when's January 1st getting here so we can just start the whole thing over again? I literally finished reading Revelation on December 31st, and on, Je on January 1st, I turned to Genesis 1 all over again. Let's start the whole thing. Read the whole Bible over and over. When you're done, do it again all the time. That's how God wants you to read it. Genealogies exist throughout the Bible. I want to draw your attention to verse 14. <clears throat> These are the heads of their fathers' houses. Sounds fairly simple at first when we just, at quick glance, okay, great, heads of fathers' houses. I want to draw your attention to the fact that in verse 14, we are talking about a specific person's father's houses. These are the heads of their father's houses. This is not a basic genealogy of Israel. This is a specific genealogy. You may have a subheading, I do, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Often seen as interrupting, again, with the contextual layout of Exodus 6. This is why it is often viewed as an interruption. Because in Exodus 1, we have the setup of, e of, of Israel in Egypt, the Hebrews and the persecution and the deliverance that God will bring and Moses and the burning bush and all this wonderful stuff through Exodus 6 and even into Exodus 6 where God says, I am the Lord, I will deliver my people. And then on the other side of this genealogy, we have Moses and Aaron actually going before Pharaoh for the first time. They go before him and the stuff starts happening. There's snakes swallowing snakes and there's blood and there's flies and there's frogs and there's pestilence and there's hail and there's darkness and there's death. Like it's going to like buckle up because when we come out of Exodus 6, the showdown between Moses, between Pharaoh and God is like God hits the throttle. Here we go. I will show him. It will take a mighty hand, God has said, for Pharaoh to let Israel go. 
People view it as an interruption because of what is happening on either side of it. Philip Ryken, commentary I've been reading as I study through Exodus, says this, quote, Ancient readers understood the importance of family history, and it is doubtful whether they would have seen it as an interruption at all. We, and I'm not going to dive off the cliff of how important the family is, though I certainly could, we have lost the importance of family and history. One, because we live in the great melting pot, right? We all come from everywhere. I can trace my genealogy. On my mom's side, we've had really good family historical work done, and we can go back to, I want to say, middle to late 1600s, I think, right? On my dad's side, son of, son of Don, son of George, son of Harry, son of Moses, my great-grandpa's grand, my great dad's name was Moses. That's cool. You get back into that family history, and I get back into the early 1700s, and I have no idea where anybody came from or what they did or nothing. It's all like hamlets and towns in Scotland and England and all these places, and there's just, you can't know. And as we came to America, and as people began pursuing a new life and the great dream, that just got lost. And now you have people who, I mean, show of hands for those of you who have actually never thought about considering where you came from or your family. You don't have to put your hand up right now. People don't know. Many don't even care. But these people did. And when Moses breaks into the genealogy here, nobody who's reading this back in what, let's call it, what did we determine at the beginning of Exodus? We said roughly it's safe to say 1400 BC. No one's reading this and thinking, what are you doing, Moses? Back to the story. No, they're like, wait a second, whoa, whoa. This is important. The heads of their father's houses, we've got to see this. And we've also understood that understanding what this meant for them then is key to our understanding what it means for us now. It's a book that's written for all people, but it was written to a specific people. And Moses is making a specific point as he talks here, perhaps a couple of them. In Exodus 1, 2 through 4, we have all the names of the sons of Jacob that go into Egypt. Would you flip back just a couple pages? Exodus 1, 1 and 2. Look what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob. He had his name changed by God. No longer shall you be Jacob. Now you should be Israel back in Genesis. Who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Genesis 46 shows us the household. Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. We have the names of those who go into Egypt with Jacob. Most genealogies, let's understand this, start with the oldest. Wherever it's starting, when it calls out a name, they're the oldest one. So here, when he starts, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben. He's gone back to, this is the patriarch of this line because who existed before? No one. There was Abraham, there was Isaac, there was Jacob, there was 12 sons. So he only goes back to Reuben at the start here. Most of them start with the oldest, especially in the culture of which we are reading about. So here, when he starts writing, these are the heads of their father's houses, he starts with Reuben, with Simeon, and with Levi. Now, why would he only list those three? There's 12 of them listed back in Exodus chapter 1, but here there's only three. This is respect. This is Moses owing respect to, in my father's home, there was the patriarch Israel. He had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And then Moses diverges. Why? Because he's showing us a specific line, his own. I probably should have warned you. I didn't write it down. I meant to make a mental note so everybody can shift and imagine that we're starting the sermon all over again, but not. This is a fairly technical and fairly academic sermon today. It's probably going to feel a little bit more like a professor lecturing than a sermon, but I really want you to hang on amidst the luxury kind of academic points to see the glory and beauty of what God is doing. Okay, fast forward back to where we are. Most genealogies start with the oldest, Reuben, Simeon, out of respect to get to Levi his own. It's easy to agree with because when Moses is done listing them, he doesn't give the other sons of Jacob. 
Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then back to the story. This is why people say this seems like an interruption. It's not. He's making a point. I want to note, remember, one of the points today is your family history can't outdo the plan of God. This is a relevant thought for us. I don't know how you encounter people. People will often say, uh, God can't use somebody like me if you only knew where I came from. If you only knew my past. My dad was a drunk. My grandpa was an adulterer. My great-grandpa was a thief and a cheat and a liar. And God can't use me because look at my history. <clears throat> Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. These three patriarchal sons in the house of Israel. Genesis chapter 35 tells us that Reuben committed immoral adultery with his father's concubine. Parents, have fun explaining that to your young children. It was, it was a forbidden relationship. He goes right to, ugh, gross. Simeon and Levi. I actually, when we were naming our youngest son Judson, we named him Judson, I had two names, and only two. One was Judson, and the other was Simeon. And my wife said, we can't name him Simeon. We already have a Levi. And the story of Simeon and Levi, found in Genesis chapter 34, is... This guy named Shechem liked their sister named Dinah. And Shechem goes and the Bible literally says, he knew her, right? Have fun, parents. He knew her, defiled their sister. And so they strike a deal with Shechem and the men of his city. Hey, we'll give you our daughter, but you guys all have to be circumcised, which you can revisit Exodus chapter 4, where we talked about circumcision. You've got to go through this first, or we're not giving you our sister. So you know what happens? I think the guy's name is Hamor, and his son is Shechem. I'm pretty sure. This sounds good to us. We'll do this. Okay, we'll do it. So all of the men of this city are circumcised. The Bible literally records it. You can find it for yourself. Again, it's Genesis 34. The Bible says that Levi and Simeon, when all of the men, after three days, were in great pain, no doubt, went and murdered every man of the city, took their swords, and killed Every man, I say, you know why? You touch our sister, we'll teach you. And killed every man. They should not have done that, P.S. Maybe we're like, well, sounds right, that's capital. No, 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 no. They should not have committed murder. God would have exacted his judgment on them. Simeon and Levi get involved and murder those guys. So do you know what happens? This is extremely important and very relevant to this genealogy and things that we're going to talk about today. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the oldest three. Do you know who are insignificant in the tribe of Israel? The oldest three siblings. Everything that should have belonged to the oldest three goes to Judah. Not because of what the oldest three did, because of the plan of God. But as we see life happen for them, we look back and see the plan of God unfolding for us. And that's to go on, there's more in here. I couldn't draw all of it out. But even down in, I see the Korahites in verse 24. They're listed, verse 21, the sons of Izhar, Korah. Numbers chapter 16, you can read all about the earth-swallowing rebellion of the sons of Korah. They stand up against Moses, and Moses is like, hey, all of you, take your fire over there, and all of you, take your fire over here, and we will let God decide. Moses literally says words like, we will wait, and if something like what has never happened before happens to them, we'll know that they were wrong and we were right. And they all step back with their fire in their hand, and the Bible says, the earth opened and swallowed them. Well, I've never seen that happen before. I guess we know whose side they were on. That, that's, that's Korah, the sons of Korah. Not everything is bad, though. Levi's sons, look at that in verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. It's interesting. We have their ages, Levi 137, Kohath 133, Amram 137, shows a validity to the hundreds of years that were spent by Israel in Egypt. I want to make this point. We would have to study further numbers in Deuteronomy and Joshua to see it play out, but I want to mention this. We've already talked about the promised land. Why? Because God is delivering his people out of the house of Egypt, out of the burden of slavery, and he's taking them where? To the promised land. Well, when they get to the promised land, it's not that they walk in and it's a free-for-all. We're here. We'll do what we want now. No, no, no. The land is divided up, right? 
Uh, anybody who has ever experienced the death in the family, we understand this. Everything gets brought together and everything gets segmented and everything gets apportioned to the kids. Well, God, the Father, apportioned the promised land to the kids. Okay? That's what, effectively, that's what's happening as they go into the promised land. Every tribe gets a land, except Levi. Levi doesn't get a land inheritance in the promised land when they move in. What's interesting is this. They don't get nothing. They just don't get land. Show of hands if you know what the tribe of Levi gets as the story of the Bible continues on as the narrative goes forward. The Levites will become priests to God. They will be responsible for, this is fascinating to me, they're responsible for the tabernacle, which, hold on, we get to later in Exodus, the 30 chapters, we're going to read all about the tabernacle. But they're responsible for Levi's sons, all three of them, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, each of them are responsible for the contents, the outer, the coverings, the poles, the bases, the bins, the basins, the utensils, everything. It all falls on Levi's sons to pack it up, to transport it, to set it up. When Israel is supposed to move, they pack it up. When Israel is supposed to camp, they set it up. And then, when they camp, it's not just, all right, we're at the campground, everybody find your spot to pick. The Levites set up the tabernacle, because God is a God who dwells with his people, and that's what's represented in the tabernacle. I can't wait to study it all with you. And then, the Levites camped around the tabernacle. You know why? Because God gave them the responsibility of guarding and entrusted to them everything within it, and no one from the tribe of Israel was to go into the tabernacle and touch any of those things. So the Bible literally says, they shall camp around the tabernacle so that harm doesn't fall on the rest of my people who are not to come near to the tabernacle. And then the Israelites beyond them would camp by tribe around. So you have the tabernacle at the center. You've got Levi on the outside of it. And you've got the other tribes by tribe around Levi. That would happen in the promised land to the sons of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi's second son, Kohath, tells us these are the sons of Kohath. Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Down to the end of verse 20. In verse 20, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137. So we come now to Amram and his wife Jochebed, who, if you want to pronounce it in the Hebrew, would have said something much more like Yochebed. We see Jochebed and it makes sense to us, but in the Hebrew they would have said something along the lines of Yochebed. Names? And their meaning, and don't get me going, remember that conversation like 10 minutes ago? The beginning of her name, Joe, Yo, Jehovah, is a direct tie to the Lord God. It is unreasonable that anyone prior to Moses would have had a name so directly linked to God. I think there's a bit of a reason, but we're not going to get into that this morning. Amram Mary's Jochebed. Did you catch what it said there? Took as his wife his father's sister. Remember this came up when we were journeying through Exodus chapter 2. We examined them, helped by Hebrews 11.23, only to these points. They hid Moses by faith. They were not afraid of the king's edict, and they saw the child Moses was beautiful. That's what we discussed and looked at about Amram and Jochebed to this point. Now we come here and it says he took his father's sister. Remember back in Exodus chapter 2, what Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 2 verse 1? A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So at face value in Exodus chapter 2, we're like, wow, that's pure. They're keeping it all right in the Levitical bloodline. Wow, that's great. But now we see that Amram took as his wife his father's sister. This relationship would be condemned by the giving of the law. This is an improper relationship. I wrote down there's a lot of mystery concerning them. As I researched various commentaries and was looking, nobody really agrees on Amram and Jochebed, really at all. But Numbers chapter 26, verse 59 says this. Amram's wife was Jochebed, daughter of Levi, born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Moses, Aaron, and their sister Miriam. So is it Amram's father's wife 
or is it she's born to Levi? Is she from the Levitical line? So there's mystery that concerns them. However, the Bible says Amram took his father's sister as his wife. This relationship will be forbidden when the law is given. Why would, why would Moses list a forbidden relationship other than to show us my great-grandpa was a murderer and my dad wasn't super awesome, questions about his wife, and my cousins rebel against me in the wilderness and the earth swallows them. But here's Moses being used by God to deliver the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the burden of slavery to the promised land where God will dwell with and redeem his people. Your family history does not outdo the plan of God. You don't get to excuse yourself because you have messed up parents or messed up grandparents. God's plan is what will endure and your messed up wrecked family tree that might not fork isn't going to do anything to stop God's plan from happening. There is something that Moses wants us to see. This relationship would be banned, would be, as defined in verse 20, it would be outlawed by the giving of the law at Sinai. This is all the Bible says about them, and we should really stay here because nobody really agrees. But here's what we really want to observe. Moses is not drawing our attention to this unprescribed relationship between Jochebed and Amram. That's where we want to default and fall off the rails, right? And every skeptic out there wants to find us and be like, what about that? This is not what Moses wants us to see. This is not what God wants us to see. If God wanted us to know about Amram and Jochebed's relationship more, he'd have had whole chapters devoted to it in the Bible, but he doesn't. They get like four verses and it's out. They're wanting us to see this bloodline makes Moses and Aaron legitimate leaders and sons of Israel. And do you see how quickly in my explanation of the genealogy, how quickly we're mentally disrupted from what's actually being talked about when we start going off of the rails and not looking for, but what did it mean for them? What it meant for them is Moses was raised as an Egyptian for 40 years, disappeared and shows up, and he says, I'm going to deliver you, God said so. Yeah, well, who are you? I'm Moses, son of Amram, son of Kohath, son of Levi. That's who I am. And then he shows us. This is further backed up by what we see around the genealogy. It's very important. So now I want us to focus on this. Your subheading, if you've been paying attention, says the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. To this point, it's all been Moses that we've been talking about. From Exodus 1, well, actually in Exodus 2 when Moses is born, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, Aaron shows up for a brief hot second, but it's all about Moses. We know that he fled Egypt as a murderer. We know that uh, he saved the daughters of Jethro. We know that Jethro gave Zipporah as his wife. We know that he has a son named Gershon, which is very similar to the name of the son that Levi has, Gershon. Those two names are synonymous. It's all been about Moses. In chapter 4, it says that Moses has sons, so there's more than just one. In Exodus chapter 18, we find out his other son is named Eliezer. Note takers, Eliezer and Eleazar. You want to get confused? Don't see, the don't see the pronunciation distinction between them. Son of Aaron, Eleazar. Son of Moses, Eleazar. Okay. Is everybody here? You following? You tracking? You're like, oh, pastor, I'm struggling to see it. I know you are. I know. It's okay. Let's keep going. On each side of the genealogy, I want to draw your attention now. Would you look at verse 13? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. I want you now to look down to verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. Verse 27, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt this Moses and this Aaron. We're going to start highlighting. We should have been paying more attention all along, but he's not listed, so we don't. We're going to start seeing now the highlight of Aaron and God's plan for him in all of this. You remember back in chapter 4 when Moses is like, I don't talk good. Remember what happens? 
Oh, right, that's when God brings Aaron as plan B because Moses doesn't want to do what he told him to. Remember? No, it's not plan B. It's been a plan all along. Aaron has been set aside by God to be what he's going to be from before the foundation of the world. He's not making it up as he goes along, and here we start to see what that is going to be. The emphasis in this genealogy is not the autobiographical Moses. The emphasis in this genealogy is Aaron, his brother. The emphasis is not on Moses. In fact, from verse 14 to verse 27, Moses' name is only mentioned twice, and nothing of his family is talked about except his father and his brother. This is about Aaron. Why are we talking about Aaron? Well, we can only learn what we know from reading the whole Bible. This is Moses writing in his day, in his time, the things that God inspired him to write and giving it for us as a record of the people of Israel. But we have all of God's word and we can look back and we know what Aaron becomes, we know what he leads to, we know what comes from him, and we're thankful. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is writing things down here that he has no idea at all what they're going to translate into, gosh, in the wilderness 40 years from now. Okay, Aaron. He comes into the narrative back in chapter 4 as Moses is trying to get out of doing what, he wants, what God wants him to do. Remember, you're going to go, uh, who am I that I should go? I don't, they won't listen to me. I don't talk well. Really, I don't want to go, God. Oh, you're going. Look, here comes Aaron, your brother. At this point, all we know is that Aaron is his brother. We don't actually know until we get to Exodus chapter 7 that Aaron is the older brother of Moses. Here in Exodus chapter 6, it tells us Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron, firstborn, and Moses, secondborn. And we have no idea where Miriam's born in there, but we're going to meet their sister as we journey through Exodus 2. She may have been older. I don't think she was. She's definitely rebellious. It's what her name means. Aaron comes into the narrative... And if we don't hold to the truth that God has authored all things for mankind from eternity past, it's very easy in Exodus chapter 4 to believe that Aaron is a plan B. But if we hold to the biblical truth that God is the author of all things, specifically the life of man, if we hold to that, then it's easy for us to begin seeing as we read the Bible, God's plan for Aaron is far than just a plan B. As Exodus goes on, we're going to learn more about Aaron. For now, he shows up. We should have been paying attention. Turn back to Exodus 4. Note takers, you'll want to underline it. You'll want to make note of it. This is important. This is extremely important. When Aaron shows up, God says to Moses, Exodus 4, verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Remember we read that? I just, kind of gl- I just kind of glanced over it in Exodus 4 several weeks ago. What's saying here, God has already said, I will put everything to your mouth and I'll teach you both what to say. Verse 15, he shall speak for you to the people. Are you paying attention? He, Aaron, this is my plan, Moses. Aaron is the mediator between me and you to the people. I'm using Aaron to stand between the people and effectively myself. Moses, I'm using you. You're instrumental here. But Moses is the one who's going to speak. Aaron comes onto the scene. This is what his purpose is. God has placed him in the role of mediator. We learn more about Aaron to this point. Again, only Moses' brother. Here we learn he's the older brother. Exodus 7 verse 7 tells us Aaron is 83 and, and Moses is 80. There's three years between them. Aaron takes as his wife. This is where things start to, the, the, the foot has been on the accelerator, but now it starts to push things down a little bit as far as genealogies are concerned. Aaron took as his wife, Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore to him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. How many people said, so what? Right? It's okay, you can admit it to me. I don't have any idea what it means, pastor, so what? When you read the whole Bible, you come to find out that Aminadab and Nashon are from the tribe of Judah, the fourth son of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Moses stops there, but look who Aaron marries. Aaron marries a woman named Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon. Numbers chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 tells us that Nashon is not just of Judah, 
He is a chief. When you read number seven, all the chiefs of the clans come to present their things as the ark and the tabernacle are being devoted. He comes and he is the one who presents their offering when they give the tabernacle blessing in Numbers chapter 7. Nashon is a big deal in the family of Judah, who's a big deal, as we're going to see. And some, some brains are probably even already clicking. Wait a second. House of Judah? Wait a second. Reuben and Simeon I'm remotely familiar with. Levi, yeah, I get it, the priests and all that. But Judah, there's some pretty important figures that come from the line of Judah. Not much is really known about Elisheba. She is the wife of Aaron. She bears him four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. In this moment, Pastor, can you please help me understand why you're talking about all of this? In this moment, when Aaron and Elisheba marry, and he has sons born to her, what we need to see is this. Here's what's being shadowed. Aaron and all of his sons will be the priests in Israel. They are the line of priests. And Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, is from the house of Judah. In the house of Judah, everybody said, they're the kings. That's right. All of them. All of the legitimate kings that we will read about in the Bible, the kings of Judah, will come from the house of Judah. Judah and Aaron and Elisheba marry. And in this moment when they marry, we see the line of priests and the line of kings intersect. It only happens right here. We get this beautiful glimpse of the line of kings and the line of priests intersecting. Pastor, what are you talking about? Let's keep going. They have four sons. Look at them. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Anybody know who Nadab and Abihu are? Show me your hand if you know the story of Nadab and Abihu. Some think they do. Okay, you, do, you got it. Good, good. They offer unauthorized fire before God as priests, and God consumes them with fire, and they're dead. Like, they're literally, <laughs> I just read it, and I'm like, oh, man, those poor guys. But God is good, and God is perfect, and his judgments are true. They're offering this fire. They've just established the worship and the priests and all this stuff, and they, like, light their torches and go to make this offering, and fire comes out from before the Lord and kills them both because they should not have done what they did. They're gone. So Aaron goes from four sons to two, Eleazar and Ithamar. Eleazar and Ithamar would carry on as faithful priests before the Lord. Eleazar would have a son named Phineas. In verse 25, it tells us this. You can read about Phineas. Fascinating. Numbers chapter 25. How many people are familiar with Balaam and his donkey? Show me your hands. Show me your hands if you're reading your Bible. Right. Balaam and his donkey. Right. What happens, though? Balaam and his donkey are summoned by a guy named... Good job. Balak. Balak leads the children of Israel to commit sin by intermarrying with women they should not have intermarried with. This is a big problem for Israel in their history. And they sin. And in Numbers chapter 25, the Bible says that Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, who's priest, takes his spear and goes through the camp and kills all of the men who are sinning, sexually idolatrous with the people of Peor, the sin of Peor. It's like, it's significant throughout all of Israel's history. Phineas goes and does this. We're like, oh my gosh, these people just like, they kill all the time. And God said, Phineas has satisfied my wrath on sin. Do you understand why your Bible is so important to read? Like the whole thing all the time. Do you know what God is saying effectively of Phineas? He's the propitiation for that sin right now. Sounds familiar. As we start thinking about people from Judah and the work of priests, as our mind starts rightly clicking about other things that we know from God's word, Phineas becomes one who makes atonement for Israel in that moment. Later, David in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David would organize the sons of Eleazar and Ithamar, because Nadab and Abihu, just a smoking pile of ash. But there's a bunch of them, and all of a sudden they've got the temple, right? They, they, they've got the pre well, they don't have the temple yet because David organizes them, but they're organizing worship in Jerusalem. Like, here we are in Jerusalem, I want to build the temple. No, your son will do it. So David organizes the priests. You know who he gets? He gets the sons of Eleazar and Ithamar. Like, 
I hope that what I'm about to share with you blows your mind like it blew mine. If not, you can just be thankful that your pastor loves the Bible. How about we leave it there? But he organizes them in, verse, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, organizes the sons of Eleazar and Ithamar into divisions, okay? So this is like one, two, three, four, five divisions, and so on. There's 16 divisions because there's eight of Ithamar and eight of Eleazar, but there's more of Eleazar, so they start there. Eight divisions. So now when you read Luke chapter 1, August 7th, so everybody will read Luke chapter 1 probably sometime around December 15th, when you get into your cute little Christmas reading plan and you read about a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And how many times? I, I literally was like, Lord, I've never seen it. I asked my wife, she's like, I never saw How many people have always looked at that and wondered, what is the division of Abijah? I thought the Levites were priests. And this guy here, he's the, what's the division of Abijah? That's because David organized the sons of Eleazar and Ithamar into divisions, and Zechariah is one of them. And what's he do? He goes into the temple, and God says, you're going to have a son. Right? Who? Who is Zechariah's son? John the... Okay, we're reading our Bibles. Good, good. John the Baptist. Aaron is the head of the priests. Zechariah is a son of Aaron. You know, Luke chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, Zechariah, priest in the order of Abijah, comes from the sons of Eleazar, the eighth division. He marries a woman named, anybody know? Zechariah's wife, Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's wife, mother of John the Baptist. Elizabeth. You know what the Hebrew root of Elizabeth is? Elishaba. Zechariah and Elishaba. You know what this means? John the Baptist is purely Levitical because Elizabeth is of the daughters of Aaron and Zechariah is a son of Aaron of the division of Abijah. So they give birth to John the Baptist who does what? What's he do? A voice of one calling in the make way a straight path for. So you have a priest declaring to the people, the king is coming, make a straight path, and he's directly from the Levitical line of priests. And here comes Jesus from the house of Judah. And if you look, as you journey through the scripture, as you come to the line of Jesus Christ, you'll find these two guys, in fact, three. One, Zerubbabel. Remember when I said that funny name not long ago? Zerubbabel. It's fun. The Hebrew guy on the blue letter Bible thing that I have on my phone says it's like Zerubbabel. I'm like, we'll stick with Zerubbabel. I'm not sure how many bubbles there should be in there, but Zerubbabel. You know who Zerubbabel is? This is so important. You know who he is? He's who the exiles came out of Babylon to Jerusalem with. Exodus chapter, or Ezra chapter 2, verse 10. The exiles came with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the line of Judah. You know who's before him in the line of Judah? Aminadab and Nashon. Turn with me. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Your family tree doesn't matter for the plan of God. I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 1. Family trees in the Bible. Everybody's like, Pastor, so What? It's all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you say? It's all about me. Everything you read is about me. It's declaring me, even in the genealogy of Aaron in Exodus chapter 6. Family trees in the Bible are full of murderers and adulterers. They're full of liars and cheats, full of swindlers and schemers, full of idolaters and every other sinful condition known to man. But God's plan has never been dependent on a squeaky clean history. God redeems brokenness. And when God comes to Moses, he's saying, I know what Levi was. Furthermore, I know what Jacob was, and I know what Isaac was, and I know what Abraham was. I'm not interested, Moses. I'm calling you. I make holy. I make righteous. None of that matters. Matthew chapter 1 paints this picture so clearly. Matthew chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse Four, I actually, even just starting in verse 1, I didn't turn to it because I've looked at it so much this week. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Wow. Like, talk about a genealogy. Then he goes on. Look down in verse 4. 
Aminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Circle it. Why? Because Rahab was a Canaanite woman who had no right being in the line of Jesus Christ. She's outside of the people of Israel. But God redeems. And your broken family history doesn't outdo the plan of God. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, the father of Obed by Ruth, a Moabite woman, a pagan lady from a pagan people. Why is she in this genealogy? Because your sinful family tree cannot outdo the plan of God. It goes on. Obed by Ruth, the father of Jesse, the father of David, David, king of Israel, an adulterer, Bathsheba, a murderer, her husband Uriah. But your dirty family past does not outdo the plan of God. Then look down, verse 10. Look at what this, in verse 10, this simple name. Hezekiah, righteous, the father of Manasseh, the most wicked king in the history of kings in the line of Jesus Christ. The Bible literally says, because of the wickedness done by Manasseh, I will bring destruction on all of Jerusalem and on my people. A wicked king. It's not all bad, though. Maybe you look back and you're like, man, my, my, my genealogy is not great. And Jesus has got a lot in his genealogy here as we look through it. That is not great. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. <laughs> not great. Manasseh, but it's not all bad. Boaz, redeeming Ruth. Because it's what the law of God told him to do. David, though outweighed often by all of the negative, is a man after God's own heart. And God establishes an eternal throne with an eternal king from David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That funny name, Zerubbabel, all the exiles come with him. Look at verse 16, he's right in there. Verse 16, verse 13. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim. This guy like led exiles back. No, 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 no. We've got to go back. We've got to return to Jerusalem. We've got to go back and seek the Lord our God, and they do. Is your genealogy a wreck? Think about your family tree. Is your genealogy just a disaster? Families, everybody's got one. They're all a wreck. It's because we're all sons of Adam. Adam's race has fallen. But are you saved? There's a bright spot. Maybe you're a first-generation Christian in your family. Praise God. That family tree just changed. Praise God. You have children? Oh, opportunity for that salvation to spread as you're a Christian witness to those children and prayerfully seek God to save your children and see them raised up as children who have children that they raise up after God. And all of a sudden, somebody 10 generations from now is going to be like, my family's always been Christians because I don't remember what happened before my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa. We follow God in our family. As we examine biblical genealogies and the connections made through them, we grow in our confidence in God. God has always been working his plan throughout all of history. And in Exodus 6, as Moses dwells here on the house of Aaron, he wants us to see it. He's going to become a major person in the history of Israel. And right here in Egypt, Aaron is going to become so important. Aaron will be a priest his line will be the mediatory workers of the covenant of God between God and Israel. That's what they're going to do, but it's going to fail. As we see Moses spend time here, we can think man still needs a mediator, but the mediator must be perfect. And we immediately, as we study a genealogy, come to the need of the mediator, Jesus Christ. There is one God, one mediator, 1 Timothy says, between God and men, the man, Jesus Fully God, able to defeat sin. Fully man, able to be punished for sin. Perfect mediator, never failing for you. Unlike the priesthood, the mediatory work of Aaron's line, the priesthood of Christ will not fail. Have you placed your faith in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has the only mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, is he your mediator? Are you depending on something outside of the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no other hope? He is the mediator. As we study these genealogies, few and far between, but many are they in the Bible, 
we gain greater confidence in God who has been working a plan throughout all of history to show us his glory. Would you pray? God, Father, I thank you for your word. God, I pray, I desire for people to burn with excitement and passion over your word. I'm so thankful for those that you have gathered here, God, who have patiently listened, and I pray that your word has come alive to them. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Christ, the mediator for us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand our dirty past does not outdo your plan. You redeem brokenness. Father, I thank you for so many family histories in this room, my own, where there is so much brokenness. Father, I thank you for everyone who is in this room hearing about your eternal plan through Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the perfect mediator, you have saved us. Father, I pray for those in this room who may not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that today will be one more thing used by your Holy Spirit to draw them to your saving grace. Father, you are good, and you do good. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.